Let us turn in God's Word this morning to Psalm chapter 73. Psalm 73. For many Protestant Reformed people, when we think of Psalm 73, we think of it as being the proof text for why we do not hold to common grace. God give sunshine and prosperity to the wicked as well to the righteous. And the psalmist Asaph was struggling with that reality, and it was not until he went into God's house and understood that God gave this apparent prosperity to the wicked to put them in slippery places for their destruction. But there's another important truth that comes out in Psalm 73, and that's the blessedness of communion. It's the basis for our Psalter number 203 in sweet communion, Lord, with Thee. So as we read through this psalm, I encourage you to look for instruction about communion, both with God as well with the neighbor. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, 
I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Thus far we read God's holy and inspired word. And God bless the reading of his word unto our hearts. It's on the basis of what we have read in Psalm 73 and many other passages of scripture besides that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day, 21, focusing this morning on the second two questions and answers, question 55 and 56 of Lord's Day 21. Question 55, what do you understand by the communion of saints. First, that all and every one who believes, being members of Christ, are in common partakers of Him and of all His riches and gifts. Secondly, that everyone must know it to be His duty readily and cheerfully to employ His gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. What believest thou concerning the forgiveness of sins, that God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature, against which I have to struggle all my life long, will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth that we consider this morning, the truth of the communion of the saints, is a truth that you and that I need in our lives. It is a truth that we might not always be so mindful of our need of it. It is a truth that at various seasons of life, due to pride and sin, we might think that we're okay without that reality in our lives. It's a truth that at times we might even think we're better off. It's good for me not to have this truth evident 
in my life. And this truth that we consider this morning is the truth of the communion of the saints. How often is it not the case, if we are being honest, that we do not love, value, pray for, seek to promote the communion of the saints as we ought to. It is so easy for us to have a spirit of independentism that rises up within us, proud spirit that is, a mentality that I'm okay by myself, I don't need others, I have enough strength and enough courage and enough wisdom that I can stand by myself in the midst of this world and I can isolate myself from the church of Jesus Christ. The only way that we see the value and the necessity of sweet communion is by faith. It's an article of faith. I believe the communion of the saints. Without faith, we would never confess it. May God fill our hearts with that faith in this morning that we might not only come to understand more what is communion, but that we might see the necessity and the blessedness of it in our lives as members of this holy congregation. Sweet communion. One, disrupted. Second, restored. Third, everlasting. Before we can consider how, from our perspective, communion seems to be disrupted at times, we must first understand something of what is the nature of communion. Heidelberg Catechism explains communion this way in answer 55, that all and everyone who believes being members of Christ are in common partakers of Him and of all His riches and gifts. It's noteworthy here where the Heidelberg Catechism starts in its explanation of what is communion. It doesn't say that communion is the congregation fellowshipping or gathering together. It does not say, start out by identifying communion as inviting others over into your home, fellowshipping with them. It does not identify communion at the outset as talking with one another in the narthex after church. Those are all important aspects of communion, but that's not where the Heidelberg Catechism begins in explaining communion. 
The Catechism, when it speaks of us partaking of Jesus Christ and of His riches and of His gifts, is giving for us here what is the essence of communion. We can understand that there's a distinction between the essence of communion and the activity of communion and the experience of communion. Those are three different aspects of the same reality. The essence the activity, the experience. We understand the same to be true of faith. Faith is the essence of faith. There's the activity of faith. And then there's the experience or the assurance of faith. And they're all related. They're all tied one to another. And yet you can see the different aspects of it. Faith. There's the essence of faith, which is the bond. There's the activity of faith, submitting and following the Word of God. And then there's the experience of faith, which is the assurance and the confidence of the truth of God's Word. Well, the same then from, as we look at communion, the essence of communion as described here for us in the Heidelberg Catechism is that we are all in common Partakers of Him, that's Christ, partakers of Christ and of all His riches and gifts. Let's consider in the meaning of these words. First looking at that word partaker. Communion means I partake of Christ. It's the idea of eating, is it not? You eat a meal. You partake of that food. You might be hungry. Stomach is empty and growling for food. And here's this meal that's set before you. It's been prepared. You can smell the aroma of it. comes into your nose. You can see with your eyes that meal in front of you, it's tantalizing. And yet, seeing that food in front of you and smelling that food is of no benefit to your body until you partake of that food. And then as you eat and ingest that food, then that food gives unto you the nourishment. There's energy that's derived from that food so that you have strength to rise up and go about the work to which God has called you. And that food, we understand, becomes the nutrients of that food is absorbed into, the, into your body so that your body is indistinguishable from then that food that is absorbed into the body. It's just saying you become or you are what you eat. Well, so it is for us, beloved, as we partake of Jesus Christ. There's an activity here of the Christian partaking of Jesus Christ. One can come to the house of God where there is this meal that is presented unto them. One can, with their physical senses, hear the Word of God as the Word of God is brought unto them. As the sacraments are being given. You can see with your eyes that water of baptism being dripped upon the head of the child. 
You can taste with your mouth the bread of communion and the wine, and yet all of that does nothing apart from partaking of Jesus Christ. Communion is actively partaking. Then we see as well with communion that this is a heavenly activity. We are partaking of Him, Christ. And where is Christ? He's in heaven. He sits at God's right hand. So we who are of this earth earthy, we who are dust creatures, partake of Christ who sits in heaven at God's right hand. The psalmist declares in Psalm 73, verse 24, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. In verse 26 as well, My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For us as earthly creatures to receive God as the portion of our heart requires the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the agent who works the communion of the saints. And so seeking and desiring the communion of the saints means that we are seeking, desiring, and praying for the Holy Spirit to give unto us Jesus Christ who sits in heaven and to give unto us the blessings and the gifts of Christ upon this earth. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. Communion. It's partaking. It's a heavenly activity where we depend upon the Holy Spirit. And then third, what what is communion? Communion is an activity that is done organically with the body of Jesus Christ. The Catechism says, and it's, Answer to question 55, all and every one who believes being members of Christ are in common partakers of Him. It is not in isolation, but in fellowship with the church of Jesus Christ that we are privileged to have communion with God. And so as Christians, we must always be on guard against a lone wolf mentality. This idea that of ourselves we are strong enough or that we can be sustained spiritually throughout this earthly pilgrimage without gathering with God's people. All and every one. The Catechism says, being members of Christ are in common partakers of Him. 
So understanding this, then, of the communion of the saints, how is it and why is it that the communion of the saints is so oftentimes disrupted? Now we speak here from an earthly perspective. We understand that that bond that we have with God can never be broken. The psalmist says, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. Previous verse, verse 23, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. He's speaking here of communion with God. We understand that from the point of view of the objective relationship with God, that's never disrupted, never broken. But it's only from the point of view of our earthly relationships, one with another, as well as our experience of our communion with God, that we can and do speak of it being disrupted. We all would confess the difficulty of experiencing the communion of the saints. It is so sweet and so beautiful when there is the communion of the saints. But oftentimes, sweet communion is an idea, a concept, but not a reality that we experience. As an adult Bible study this past week, we wrestled with this idea. Why schism? Why division? in the church of Jesus Christ. Studying Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. There the apostle lists out a number of things which are the works of the flesh. And in this list of the works of the flesh which are to be avoided, it's striking that a number of the items that he delineates for us are things that would disrupt the unity of the church. Nine of the things that he lists out in Galatians chapter 5 disrupt the unity of the church. Galatians 5, verse 20. Hatred, variance, having a party spirit, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, Murders. All of those things that would prevent the members of the church from living in communion. You can speak generally of what disrupts the communion of the saints, and we can speak specifically. Generally, what is it that disrupts the communion of the saints? It's sin. Adam knew it as soon as he partook of that fruit. He was immediately at odds, at variance with God. And the proof that he knew it was the fig leaves. And you know it as well. It's sin that creates division 
that leads to splits, hurt feelings in the church of Christ. We know it because the Spirit convicts us of it. Generally, the problem is sin. But specifically, what sin? I suppose books could be written of all of the different sins that contribute to division. But following the psalmist in Psalm 73, we speak this morning of one sin. What is it that causes variance, strife, division, envy? Envy. Envy and discontentment are what lead to troubles in the church. Notice this with me from Psalm 73, where the psalmist Asaph opens up his heart for the church to learn from his example. Psalm 73, verse 3, the second half, he starts by looking. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That's the starting point. It's a passive enough of an activity. We don't even have to be intentional about looking. The world is right in front of us. The prosperity of both the world and other members of the church as well are right in front of us. We see it through the television. We hear it through the songs of the world, through the advertisements of the world. We see prosperity of the world. What starts passive quickly becomes active. There's a progression here. He saw their prosperity and then what did he do? He compared himself. Verse 5. He comments on their prosperity. They are not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. As he looked at the prosperity of the wicked, he did not see their day-to-day troubles. All he saw was the post on Facebook or Instagram, which showed the apparent success of that individual. And he compared his life to that person's life. Verse 7 Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. It seems as if others have access to unlimited resources. They have anything that their heart could want. And I have far less in comparison. Or so it seems. He looked. He compared. And then the third thing that he did he became envious. That's the logical conclusion to this progression. Verse 3, 
for I was envious at the foolish. And because of this envy that he had against the prosperity of the wicked, he was troubled in his heart and in his soul. Verse 16, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. He struggled to understand why it was that others had such prosperity and why he himself had so little in comparison. And now we can stand here and we can shake our finger at Asaph and say, tisk tisk, Asaph, you should not have been comparing yourself to others. If only you had just been minding your own business, then you wouldn't have had this trouble in your heart and in your soul. But instead of criticizing Asaph here this morning, I want us to learn from Asaph's example. For who of us is any different than Asaph? Who of us can say, I have gone through life without ever observing the prosperity that God has given to others, and I've never compared what they have to what I have, and I've never concluded that because I have less, it's okay for me to be jealous. We are all like Asaph. Asaph is to be commended for his honesty in sharing the struggles of his own heart and in his soul. And is it not envy, beloved, that disrupts the unity of the church? When I see what God has given to others, and it might not even be physical possessions. It could be power. God has given this individual power, and I feel like I have no power. Influence. It could be abilities to speak. Abilities to help. Abilities to understand and empathize with others. And then we compare what God has given to them as compared to what we have. And we start to withdraw from them. Because we do not like it. That they've been given more than what we have. How can communion, sweet communion, ever be restored? It certainly is not of man. It is not of you or me or anyone else that communion will be restored in God's church. It is not possible to demand communion You cannot legislate communion. The elders cannot enforce communion. Parents cannot demand communion of their children. Communion is an article of faith. I believe the communion of the saints. Communion is something that arises out of one's heart. 
And because our hearts by nature are bent against God, and because by nature we are prone to hate God and the neighbor, there is no sweet communion that we might try and try with all of our earthly efforts to promote and sustain communion. Communion is not of man, but it is of God. Asaph recognized the impossibility of restoring communion. Verse 13, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain. How is it restored? Acknowledging our inability to restore and maintain communion, we do not nonetheless diminish or take away from the calling that God gives unto us to be active in seeking communion. The end of answer 55 ends this way, that everyone must know it to be his duty readily and cheerfully to employ His gifts for the salvation and the advantage of other members. And now we focus on that word, know. Everyone must know it to be His duty. Communion is restored through knowledge of truth. There is to be education about communion. Do we know what communion looks like? Have we experienced sweet communion? Do we understand from God's Word what is communion? Have we read and have we studied Acts chapter 2 where they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayer? Or are we content to be ignorant about what the communion of the saints is and how the communion of the saints is manifested and continue going in the way that we have steadfastly been going by nature? And to receive knowledge about communion requires humility. For the proud man will never say that I need instruction from God's Word and from the church about what is communion. How is communion restored? The basis of the church's communion is Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus... There is no communion. It is through Jesus that we have the pardon of our sins. And the Catechism speaks of that in answer 56. Do we believe concerning the forgiveness of sins that God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature, against which I have to struggle all my life long. The power of the communion of the saints is the pardon, the forgiveness of our sins 
through Jesus Christ. It is noteworthy here the context in which we consider in answer 56 the pardon of our sins. Where, where does the catechism consider the pardon of our sins? It's in the context here of the church. What believest thou concerning the holy Catholic church? Is how this Lord's Day begins. And then that Lord's Day ends with the forgiveness of our sins. It is certainly true that we can and do speak of the pardon of our sins on an individual level. Later on in the Heidelberg Catechism, when we look at the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins, our debts. There we look at it more on an individual level. But here the emphasis of the Heidelberg Catechism is the corporate, the bodily forgiveness of our sins. And that is how, beloved, we experience the communion of the saints. It's when we know that our sins have been blotted out with the blood of Jesus Christ that then we are able to seek the good and the unity of the church. Through this work of God, whereby God pardons our sins, we are made rich, partakers of Him and of all His riches and gifts. How rich we are in Jesus. Rich because of His unconditional and everlasting love revealed unto us. Rich because God has given unto us His Word, which is the Word of life, which gives unto us that life everlasting. Rich, because Jesus Christ for our sakes became poor, that through His poverty we might become rich. Rich, because we have been bought with a price, not gold or silver, but with the blood of God's own Son. It's when we contemplate our riches in Christ that the reason for division is taken away. Recall, why is there division? Because of envy. Why do we envy? Because we take our eyes off of God and look at the neighbor and see that they have been given more and we have been given less. God addresses that root problem of envy by giving unto us the riches of Jesus Christ. Who would offend God? by taking his eyes off of the riches and gifts of Jesus and comparing himself to the neighbor and crying unfair because one does not have as many earthly possessions as what the neighbor has. May the Spirit give us to know that in Jesus Christ we are rich. That blessed communion will, will continue forever.
Answer 56 concludes, but will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. One day we're going to stand in that holy courtroom. We're going to be brought before the presence of God as Jesus Christ sits on that great white throne of judgment. There we will be judged for every word that came off of our lips, for every thought that rose up in our minds. But as Christians, we need not be afraid of that judgment day. That I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God already in the courtroom of our hearts, we know that God, for Jesus' sake, covers and cleanses. So instead of fearing that final day, we have a holy anticipation and longing for Jesus Christ to come, to bring us into heaven, where we can enjoy the perfection of sweet communion. For as long as God is pleased to have us remain upon this earth, may He strengthen us that we might readily and cheerfully employ our gifts for the advantage and the salvation of the neighbor. Jesus said, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. How rewarding, how fulfilling it is to live a life where one is a servant of others. Using one's gifts, not for one's own exaltation, Honor, promotion at work, but using one's gifts for the promotion of the neighbor's advantage. For as long as we remain on this earth, may God grant us that strength. And we look forward to heaven where we will continue there to employ our gifts for the church's good, into eternity. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, who has dealt with us, we confess, not as we deserve to be dealt, but in grace and in love and with pity for us as Thy children. Thou hast dealt with us. Wilt Thou draw us ever closer to Thyself with the sweet cords of love. Hold us as a congregation together in one faith, one hope, and one love. For Jesus' sake, Amen.